it's true that all the men you knew were dealers who said they were through with dealing every time you gave them shelter. I was having a brainwave for an episode just now, uh, a movie I think we should talk about in the future. Um, let me know what you think about this. I don't know why I thought of this movie, but Michael and us watches Castaway. What do you think? Do you remember Castaway with Tom Hanks? Do I remember Castaway? I, I mean, I saw it when it was new. Wilson, Wilson, the volleyball. Yep. Um, I, I liked it when I was eleven or twelve when I saw it in the theater. <laughs> what, what, what's your, what's the Michael and us angle on Castaway? I don't, I, I don't think we have one, but I know that we'll find one. You, I am. You I've just, never been. You just want to watch Castaway? I, no, I don't want to watch Castaway. I think it sucks. But I feel you think it. Castaway my bones. sucks. I don't think it's very good, man. I think I, it might be good. Here, I don't here's know. here's my here's my working theory of Castaway. And like, don't at me on this. If you're listening, you like Castaway. Maybe Will's right. Maybe it's actually good. I haven't seen it in 20 years. But my gut instinct is that this is one of those movies where like this movie, it was everywhere, right? It was like a reference point. Even if you hadn't seen it, you knew what Castaway was for the longest time. But I think it's just a case of like, okay, you put Tom Hanks in what was that movie? The early two thousands. You the, put him the year two thousand. Year two thousand. Exactly, yeah. You put him. Uh, I'm really good. I'm like Rain Man with uh, movie release right, dates. Right, right. So it's it's it was, so it's the end of history, right? You put Tom Hanks <laughs> yeah. in a movie, and then I don't know. You put a bunch of iconography in the movie that's kind of like memorable, even if there's not necessarily a lot of substance behind it. You know, Wilson, the volleyball, whatever. He's got a catchphrase right at the end of the movie. He goes Wilson. Wilson! And then, I don't know, it just kind of sticks in the craw, you know? But it's not necessarily good. But you, I can look, I can see, I know Will well enough at this point, I can see just his, you're not getting his facial expressions because y'all are listening at home, but I I can tell he doesn't like this. He's less of a cynic, even though, even though you are the card carrying, like, anti-Hanks guy on this show. Well, I'll just say, I love movies, okay? (laughs) I love movie magic, and I don't think this is purely astroturfed. I think the premise of a guy trapped on a desert island Island and having yeah, to, that's never been done before. Uh, well, the reason it's been done before is because it's a great <laughs> premise. It's a great idea. The idea of having a volleyball, that's your only friend. And then at the end of the movie, when he loses Wilson, spoiler, by the way, for... <laughs> people who haven't seen it he loses it like i remember i remember feeling that i remember feeling that because it's like you he would imbue that that inanimate object with a lot of meaning makes me think of my childhood teddy bear okay well i think we need to turn to the people for this one you should all add us about this should we do an episode on castaway if you've seen the movie recently which of like is will or my gut instinct about it correct do we need to watch it to resolve this you know what do, what do y'all go think? to your local goodwill and get a copy of castaway I'm sure there's a DVD <laughs> copy. You can probably get a commentary track by director Robert Zemeckis. You can probably get the making of Castaway. Do your research and then let us know <laughs> what's the angle. I know. I think I know what launched this brainwave, Luke. We were just watching a video on YouTube um, with one of my favorite YouTube personalities. I'll just say his name. Michael Ray Bauer, the actor. He played Donkey Lips on Salute Your Shorts. I'm a huge... People definitely know what that is, by the way. Uh, there's at least... 5% of our audience will know what Salute Your Shorts is. I think that's generous, but okay. Hey, listen. Add us if you know yeah, what Salute Your Shorts is. Listen, we're going to make this interactive. We're going to find out just how culturally tone deaf my co-host is when we find out that you all love Castaway and you all love Salute Your Shorts. <laughs> We were watching an old video where him and Wet Movie One went to see the movie. It was another vlogger. Yeah, Yeah. uh, went to see the movie Sully. And uh, on the way out, they were doing their review. And Wet Movie One was like, yeah, it's 
pretty good movie and michael ray bauer said uh i don't know i'm a bit more of a truther you know i i look at i look at things a little differently like i look at sully and i think you know was it a false flag did it really happen and i love the idea of being a sully truther because it's like <laughs> what does the deep state have to gain from <laughs> from faking the sully incident <laughs> i don't know i don't uh i don't see it anyway welcome to michael and us i'm will sloan here as always with luke savage welcome back folks and uh before we continue with the show, I do want to get in uh, just a short plug at the beginning. We're recording this just about four weeks out from the publication of the book I've co-authored with former NDP leader Ed Broadbent and uh, my colleagues Jonathan and Francis, Seeking Social Democracy. That comes out on October 10th. You can pre-order it now. We are doing a series of live events around the book, and I have a few just to mention now. There may be more, but we will be launching the book at the Ottawa Writers' Festival on the day of its publication, October 10th. We're going to be in downtown Ottawa at St. John the Evangelist Church, 100. 54 Somerset Street West. We are also going to be at the Toronto Reference Library on October the 22nd. Uh, That's going to be an afternoon event at 2 p.m. And if you live in Vancouver, uh, we'll be there, I believe, at the Vancouver Reference Library in early November, probably November 1st. But I will have more details on that as they become available. Well, since we're doing plugs, I might as well tell you folks about the Michael and Us Patreon, patreon.com slash Michael and Us. I'll tell you what's been happening over in that neck of the woods. We recently did an episode going over the long and controversial history of the Jerry Lewis MDA Labor Day Telethon, one of my favorite former annual rituals. We went back into the Tubi mines, talked about maybe the worst documentary we've ever seen. I don't I don't say those words lightly. Maybe the worst documentary we've ever seen, something called Trump the First Term, as well as did you know that former U.S. House Representative Robert Morazic uh, directed a movie about a congressman starring Treat Williams? What does it look like when a congressman makes a political movie? You'll find out from 2016's The Congressman. And this week, just to follow up on this episode, uh, we'll be doing something just a little bit different on the Patreon. Different, but also similar to what we often do. A sort of death of cinema forum. Uh, We'll be talking about different visions of the death of cinema happening right now. And also just some of the uh, landscape of cinema at the moment, because Will has had a media pass for the Toronto International Film Festival. So on that episode, you'll hear him tell me about uh, some of the films he's been seeing. What to see, what to skip. (laughs) The Oscar race is heating up. And I do think we'd be remiss in not mentioning, I think, my personal favorite piece of content on the Patreon, something I was not involved in, but which I think Will did a spectacular job on. That was the full-length documentary you did on Orson Welles and the radio broadcast he did trying to advocate for a black veteran who was a victim of police brutality. Will and I have both been experimenting with this kind of solo episode format recently, and it's been a lot of fun. Uh, I think Will's effort in that regard was particularly good, so check it out, patreon.com slash us. I maybe should have brought this up uh, in our other conversation just because it's movie theme, but something came up in my Facebook memories recently. I'm not sure if you remember this, Will, but it put a smile on my face. The thing in question was just a screen cap of a Wikipedia article. I had not thought about this for years, but when I start reading it, you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. So Peter Howell of the Toronto Star gave Score a Hockey Musical two and a half stars out of four, saying, Score isn't deep and there's no danger of it becoming a global phenomenon, but it's as true a crowd pleaser, one that doesn't require season tickets to the Maple Leafs to appreciate. So this is from the reception section of a Wikipedia article. Can I just say that Score a Hockey Musical for our American listeners was a (laughs) 
notoriously bad Canadian film. <laughs> well, Peter, he, P- Peter, two, Peter, two and liked a half stars. It. Yeah. Uh, well, you know the thing is, for a lot of movies, your goal is for that to be the lower end of the critical yeah. spectrum. Well, so the reception section details a few more, and then it ends. Will Sloan of Exclaim said the Whoa! film quote the film quote. I'm on the Wikipedia page. <laughs> you didn't know this? No. Will Sloan of Exclaim said the film quote fails resoundingly on every level, and quote that it was select <laughs> and, and quote that it was selected to open the Toronto International Film Festival is embarrassing. I mean, <laughs> proud what, of you. What can I say? I think I'm right. <laughs> we should do an episode on that. One of oh, the worst things I've ever seen. Score a hockey musical. Ay, 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 Everything that's bad about Canada is contained within that film. We watched a beautiful movie this week, uh, but before we talk about that, uh, I think we need to eat some vegetables first. Did want to talk about the political situation a little bit and some of the stuff I've been thinking about. There has been a tendency in the U.S. media for the past little while... There's been a style of think piece, uh, if you want, that has bemusedly engaged with the apparent dissonance between the current state of the American economy and Joe Biden's poll numbers. So all you need to know about uh, the former is that by kind of, you know, the the standard macroeconomic uh, measures, so economic growth, you know, uh, at one point it was thought there was going to be a recession this year. Over the summer, I think it was the IMF upgraded its projections for American economic growth uh, until the end of the calendar year. The job market is considered very strong. Unemployment is rather low, I think is just over 3%. According to the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics, the most recent numbers I saw. Uh, Joe Biden, meanwhile, uh, is doing uh, terribly. The election is obviously not until next year, but uh, I am really starting to think there is a good chance uh, Donald Trump could be reelected. I saw a poll just today. I mean, so the, the, the top line polls basically all have this as like a 50-50 coin flip style race, which when you're running against Donald Trump, uh, under no circumstances should that be the case. That is a Democratic candidate specific. So it's Joe Biden in 2020 or in 2024 or Hillary Clinton in 2016. Dems could sub in, you know, a random governor, maybe a Gretchen Whitmer or someone like that and uh, could run a completely insipid, uh, you know, centrist campaign and probably win. Biden is doing terribly. Uh, Top line numbers, as I said, have it as a very close race. They have Trump ahead in some cases. There's been polling that's polled Biden against, you know, every hypothetical Republican opponent. We all know it's going to be Donald Trump, but it's an interesting thought experiment, right? Uh, He loses to everyone except for Vivek Ramaswamy. So he loses to Chris Christie. I saw another poll yesterday that said that 53% of Democrats don't think that Biden has the mental acuity to serve a second term. So this is where we're at. It's not great. I'm forgetting which Substack post I read this in, but someone pointed out that, you know, when Trump towards the end of his uh, term had economic numbers like this, uh, his approval ratings were much higher. Biden's economic approval ratings uh, specifically are really in the tank. He's not really doing well anywhere. And so this has given rise to a, a type of think piece that, I mean, I just find incredibly tiresome. It's a style of think piece that, you know, effectively wonders why, you know, how voters can be so stupid and, and ungrateful. Um, you know, Paul Krugman wrote something late in the spring, and he, he ponders, you don't want to say that Americans are stupid, uh, but there are huge gaps between what people say about the economy and both what the data says and what they say about their own experience. Uh, there was another piece, Joe Scarborough in The Atlantic, who writes, uh, and th- this is, by the way, in the context of a sort of America never stop being great uh, style piece. 
He writes, overall, the U.S. economy continues to surge forward despite economists' dire predictions. And then, you know, goes on to cite America's GDP growth and other kind of macroeconomic things. And the closer is, and despite the blather that cable news hosts spit at you daily, your country is doing pretty damn well. So I love the phrasing, this kind of like, you can just see him like finger wagging as he writes that. You know, there's this kind of wider discourse about Bidenomics, which, you know, is, is, is interesting, I suppose, at the level of detail. There's, a, you know, an interesting debate going on uh, on the left about this. It's something I talk about a lot with my colleagues. There's, you know, a kind of a, a broader debate about how to situate the economic policy in particular of the Biden administration, given that it is clearly different than what we saw in 2008 with Obama. But it being different uh, doesn't mean that, you know, it's the end of neoliberalism or something, which is what, you know, if people remember some of the sort of, uh, you know, long pieces that ran in magazines during Biden's first hundred days about the second New Deal and that kind of thing. Those I do not think have really held up to scrutiny. Anyway, the the real point here and what I find so funny in all this is that there is actually a very clear uh, and obvious explanation for why Biden isn't doing better. And obviously it goes without saying that if we're talking about something as kind of complex and fluid as, you know, voter preferences, especially these kind of hypothetical voter preferences about how people might vote in an election that, you know, hasn't there hasn't really been a campaign yet. The election hasn't happened yet, etc. There are a variety of factors at play and everything like this. I mean, I, I cited that poll just now about what a thin majority of Democrats thinks about, you know, Biden's uh, age and whether he should run for a second term and that sort of thing. Notwithstanding all of that, there is a pretty compelling explanation or at least uh, quite a lot of one for this apparent disconnect between GDP growth, the unemployment rate on the one hand and Biden's uh, flailing poll numbers on the other. Shout out to my colleagues, Stephen Semler and uh, Nick French, who've both written about this uh, as well. I mean, it's almost a cliche to you know be a leftist who points this out, but obviously these kind of big top-line macroeconomic things don't actually capture everything. You can have a cost of living crisis that coexists with you know strong GDP growth and you know an ostensibly strong job market and all the rest of it. But something that seems completely elided in this kind of genre of piece that I was just criticizing is the fact that uh, the United States effectively built a kind of quasi-European style welfare state, uh, you know, towards the end of Trump's term with the beginning of the pandemic and then through the beginning of Biden's term. I mean, I don't think that there is any precedent for this, certainly not in recent American history. The cash transfers, the unemployment checks, the eviction moratoriums, pause on student loan payments, I mean, all kinds of enhancements to childcare and uh, food supports. I mean, this vast array of social supports and uh, welfare programs that were temporarily put in place and which did have a very discernible effect in lowering poverty, uh, very significantly child poverty uh, was cut, I think, to its lowest point, at least in recent American history, if not ever. Millions upon millions of people were not going hungry anymore. We're not experiencing the same levels of financial insecurity, et cetera, et cetera. And effectively, I mean, not all of that has been rolled back, but much of it. Most of the most significant programs uh, have either expired, been allowed to expire, or have just been ended. In some cases, this is the direct result of action by the Biden administration. In other cases, it's because, uh, you know, the administration at least made some effort to uh, make these programs permanent or to extend their life in some way and, uh, you know, failed in Congress. And there's a whole debate to be had there. I personally get a little frustrated with the people who think that the answer begins and ends with two senators named Manchin and Cinema, but that's a separate debate. But the bottom line is this. 
the Biden White House, wherever you place the blame, has presided over what is probably the single largest rollback of social supports and welfare protections in modern U.S. history. And that's a retrenchment that has occurred with incredible speed, uh, all during a cost of living crisis, all as basic goods are becoming more expensive, uh, food in particular, but also gas, all kinds of things. And then you kind of zoom out and there's a whole discourse from a certain species of pundit that says, why don't people know what's good for them? Why don't they appreciate Bidenomics? Why aren't people talking about dark Brandon around the water cooler or whatever? And, and it really speaks to how, you know, an entire humanitarian catastrophe, really, I mean, it can play out and it's and essentially does not find its way into the master narratives about the economy that people are, are you know, weaving in places like, uh, you know, the New York Times, uh, etc., but yeah, if anyone's wondering why Biden's poll numbers are so bad, I think that's probably a pretty good explanation. And I don't think you can really go to voters a year from now and, you know, blame Joe Manchin or something. It's not going to work. If you're the incumbent administration, regardless of who's actually to blame, they're putting that on you. You know, one of the things that Obama was good at as a president was being a sort of like tone setter in chief, a storyteller in chief. Well, I think it's very much how he saw the what like what his job and the role was. And I mean, it's a it's a not inconsiderable thing to be the one who sort of narrates the current moment, who, who positions the current moment. And Joe Biden doesn't really have the capability to do that at the moment. 10 or 15 years ago, he might have. One of the ways that he was positioned entering the 2020 race is he was the candidate who understood loss and suffering. He was the candidate who understood a kind of personal struggle, and somehow his personal struggle would become a kind of synecdoche for all of our personal struggles. Not ours, I'm Canadian. All of your <laughs> personal struggles. Well, us the people. Yeah. That, that, that's yeah. right. But over the past few years, communication has not been one of his strong suits. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, you know, he does have these moments like there was the State of the Union address a few months ago where, you know, he was pretty quick on his feet. He was good at sort of parlaying the uh, heckles from the GOP backbench into kind of uh, these little viral moments and stuff. But I think regardless, you know, there's a whole other point that can be made here. This sort of ambient mood of the Biden presidency really has been uh, anti-political. I think there's a kind of an ambient sense that things aren't uh, exactly right, but people don't really have a lot of faith. They're kind of exhausted with politics uh, to some extent. And we see this in all kinds of concrete ways, just with plummeting numbers for people watching cable news or engaging with news content on social media, that kind of thing. And on top of that, there's just a lot of cynicism. People want politics to go away because of, you know, exhaustion from the Trump era and the pandemic, etc. People are just kind of OD'd on news a little bit. I think there's also a deep cynicism that politics can really fix things. And here's where I think there's a second point to be made and where I think you can really indict liberals for Biden's current plight. I mean, the liberal or the democratic project since Bill Clinton has been all about consolidating the idea that the role of government is to just kind of harmonize itself, to align itself uh, with market forces. Those are no longer something we can intervene in or shape or control. And, you know, one uh, corollary of that is that, you know, people are no longer citizens and, and political subjectivity isn't really constructed in the way that it was perhaps in the mid 20th century, if only aspirationally. Political subjectivity such as it is has a whole lot more to do with, you know, being a consumer. If you examine the current moment, you know, and you say, well, 
look at unemployment's 3.3% and, you know, there's GDP growth. Why aren't people happy? Why don't, why don't the people love Bidenomics? Again, there's a very simple answer. Things are much more uh, expensive than they were even two years ago. Essential goods like food and fuel are more expensive. And when political subjectivity has been kind of singularly refocused at the point of consumption, when people go to buy something and it's more expensive than it was a year ago, that actually is something they connect to incumbent political power, regardless of what the supposed successes of Bidenomics have been. And just more simply and crudely, I mean, look, there were polls six months ago, seven months ago that said a majority of Democrats, self-identified Democrats, didn't want Joe Biden to run. He's running anyway. So if they seriously blow another election and allow Donald Trump to be president again, absolutely nobody uh, should get the blame uh, except for them. This is a tough business oh, to run for oh, president. Oh, no, you're a tough guy, Jeb. And, and we need to have a leader that is pre- real tough. You're never going to be president of the United States tough, by insulting yeah. your way to well, the let's presidency. Let's see, I'm at 42 and you're at three. So, so far, I'm doing better. Doesn't matter. Well, well, before we go into the movie, there's just one bit of Canadian political news that I want to address very briefly, kind of get Luke's thoughts on it. We'll address this in more detail in the coming weeks because it's a scandal that is unfolding and uh, it's not going anywhere because the Premier of Ontario is there until the next election. Uh, <laughs> but listen, in Ontario, we have a housing crisis. And let's say that you have a responsible government that just wants to build more housing. <laughs> Surely a leftist like yourself, you know, a freaking the freaking communist like you would, would agree that housing housing is a good thing, right, Luke? <laughs> I don't know why developers and uh, the political right didn't figure this out sooner. But yeah, this is the new hotness is if you're a right wing politician, or you're a big developer, just say you want to build housing, who can be against that? We have a housing, crisis. A housing crisis. Yeah, you don't need to substantiate it at all. You don't need to say build public housing or build affordable housing, just build housing. That sounds like a proactive thing. That's probably good, right? And we have all this land within the two our radius of Toronto <laughs> that has nothing on it, for God's sake. It's just fucking trees no, and just swamp. Precious and, wetlands. Yeah, and like, 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 so I don't know what your issue is. <laughs> so the scandal Will's alluding to is what has become a sort of rolling scandal, a series of, uh, you know, meta scandals surrounding the Doug Ford-led conservative government here in Ontario. I mean, there, there's too much detail to get into one conversation here. It would take an entire episode or more to go through all of it. But I mean, essentially, uh, around the greater Toronto area, there is an area called the Green Belt. It's not entirely around the GTA. There's also a bit of it that sort of reaches up further north, I think all the way to the Bruce Peninsula. But essentially, this is an area that was rezoned, if that's the right term, in the uh, early 2000s to uh, you know prevent any urban sprawl and yeah, protect these precious wetlands, uh, etc. And uh, you know, by all appearances, the government under this fraudulent aegis of wanting to uh, build housing essentially created a sort of conduit between itself and a bunch of developers, having explicitly promised, by the way, not to develop uh, in the green belt, and then just sort of quietly uh, engineered this whole kind of land swap in various kind of sketchy backroom settings, then went on to announce it as if there was like an actual procedure in place. And this was sort of an urgently needed thing. You know, circumstances have changed. We need to build housing. We need to build and look, look at all this land we've got. And just more and more has come out about the greasy machinations going on behind the scenes. You know, the developers who were mysteriously at the ticketed stag and doe uh, event for Doug Ford's daughter's wedding, various things like that. And I know that politics is so scandalous these days that, you know, this probably just kind of sounds like anything else. This is probably a version of this playing out uh, wherever you are. It's pretty classic sort of uh, 19th century style political uh, greasiness and corruption. But the reason I know that it's doing something, uh, I mean, 
the government's poll numbers uh, have fallen a bit, but that's not the real reason I know that this scandal has legs of some kind, is that the government's own messaging on it has changed quite dramatically. So when the story first broke, I mean, they did the standard thing of like, nope, there's nothing untoward here. We want to build housing. We need to build housing in this uh, in this land. What do you want? Why are you against building housing? When further details emerged that the uh, chief of staff to the minister of housing had basically just had a direct line to a bunch of big developers, you know, some of whom have connections to the uh, Progressive Conservative Party, etc. They said, nope, uh, you know, this this guy's not going to resign. Nope, a week later, quietly shown the door, something like a week later. Then on Labor Day, the minister of housing himself resigned or was shuffled out of cabinet. So they waited to announce that till Labor Day and no one was paying attention. And then within days of that, they were starting to talk about how, well, we're going to review the process for land swaps and that kind of stuff. So this is a very obvious case of sort of crisis management uh, going on. Every few days, there's some new you know, media scoop about something and the fall gets rolling again. The government's strategy is just to kind of uh, ride it out by, you know, if you turn on uh, AM radio anywhere in this province at the moment, you're just bombarded. And I've seen this on YouTube as well. You're bombarded with these paid for by the government of Ontario ads that are, you know, these nonpartisan ads about how uh, we understand housing is in crisis. We're building lots and lots of housing. And the extent to which that will work, you know, we'll have to uh, wait and see. But I think it's created a sort of noxious odor around the Doug Ford government for the first time, really. The real strength of this government has been that it has sort of deliberately made people less interested in politics. It's done its absolute utmost to be a sort of very boring, technocratic, center-right administration. Uh, the PCs got a bigger majority last summer on about the same number of votes they got in 2018. So, you know, the strategy explicitly was to reduce Doug Ford's visibility in the campaign and just to kind of suppress turnout. And it worked. This is the first thing that I think has has really kind of uh, broken that cycle. You know, I say this as someone who's generally and pretty reflexively adverse to the idea that scandals bring down governments. It's, you know, hard to live through, you know, the Rob Ford era in Toronto or, you know, the, the Trump era and think that that's the case. But I do think this one might have legs. You know, I'll share a personal anecdote here that's uh, at least tangentially related. Uh, I was in the legislature, the provincial legislature, uh, where I used to work many years ago, and it wasn't for a housing-related thing. It was on the day that the Ford government passed a bill which basically, uh, you know, begins the process of privatizing healthcare in Ontario. I mean, officially, it's not healthcare privatization; it's you know, it's outsourcing. But of course, we know from the British experience and uh, from many other places that this is how privatization starts, and it, you know, it is privatization in a very important sense. But I was struck just watching, uh, you know, I was there for not just question period, but also the statements by members, uh, which happens before where, you know, it's a mixture of people getting up to, you know, you congratulate a minor hockey team or something. And then uh, there's always like the lowest string of backbencher gets up to give these statements about like how well the government's doing. That's how you know someone's never going to be in cabinet is when they're conscripted to do that. But both in the statements by members and also in uh, the question period where the NDP across the aisle who are the official opposition in Ontario were just raking them over the coals over this uh, healthcare privatization effort. I was struck by how the conservative members, for the most part, I mean, they genuinely did not seem to be able to understand or process the ideological objection that the opposition had to this legislation. Overwhelmingly, they really seemed like people who have a very simple understanding of what governance is and what their jobs are as elected members. I mean, they really think that the role of government in a modern society is just to facilitate commerce and private enterprise, and that's it. And so I was actually expecting more kind of like fiery, like ideological objections, because of course you could make 
like a libertarian case, you know, a bad one for why, you know, the market actually delivers healthcare better. You can talk about healthcare choice, that kind of stuff. But there was none of that. It was so ideologically bloodless. It was the most ideologically passive technocratic arguments they were making in favor of this legislation. You can look at the housing issue and a lot of them, I mean, notwithstanding, you know, now there are allegations of actual corruption involved. They have the exact same view of it. You know, they think, well, there's a housing crisis. There's land that's empty. Like you'd have to be so dogmatic and doctrinaire to want to not want housing to be built in that area. Why do you want people to have houses? The rhetoric they're using is bullshit. It's like a whole you know rhetoric that's been uh, created by you know the developer lobby. A certain kind of uh, you know right wing lawmaker today really believes it in the most uh, earnest and sincere way possible. And I don't really have a point here, but I think that's in a way uh, quite extraordinary. Well, one thing I know is that I know if you had a house up here, you'd stand to make a lot of money. Now, this is all you've got to do. You put the money up for the house, I'll do all the rest. I'll look after the girls, the business, the expenses, the <laughs> running, the furnishing, everything. And I'll pay you back any money you put in the house so as you won't lose nothing. And we'll make 50-50. Now, this is all you've got to do. Put up the money for the house. I'll do all the rest. I'll look after the girls, the business, the expenses, the, the running, the furnishing, everything. And I'll pay you back any money you put in the house so as you won't lose nothing. And we'll make it 50-50. Uh, excuse me, you know I already got a whorehouse operating. Ah, you can't call them crib cows, whores. I'm talking about a proper sporting house with class girls and clean linen and a proper hygiene. Well, I, I don't think you're going to find my clientele up here uh, too interested in that sort of thing. They will be once they get a taste of it. I'm telling you, with someone up here to handle all them punters properly, you can make yourself at least double the money you make on your own. Uh, what makes you think I ain't thought of that already? Uh, them tents, you know, it's just uh, temporary. What do you do when one girl fancies another? What How do you know when a girl really has a monthly or when she's just taking a few days off? What about when they don't get their monthlies? Because they don't. What do you do then? I suppose you know all about seeing that. And what about the customers? Who's going to skin them back and inspect them? You going to do that? What do you... Because if you don't, this town will be clapped up inside of two weeks if it's not already. Well, that was Will's, uh, I think, rather heroic attempt to segue into our movie this week, uh, which is the wonderful, beautiful uh, Robert Altman film from 1971, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. I did think that was a very creative segue, although it actually feels kind of objectionable to create a bridge between what we were just talking about and an object as beautiful as McCabe and Mrs. Miller. But points for effort, nonetheless. God almighty, this movie. How about it, huh? I mean, where to even start? Uh, this is probably one of my favorite films ever. Ever. Probably, yeah. No, uh, I was, I was it, watching it and thinking, <laughs> God, this is very near the tippy top, isn't it? I mean, just all cylinders. And it's a film you introduced me to. Is that so? Some years ago, yeah. 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 You know, uh, this one in Nashville, those are the two that I watched them, and I, whichever one I've seen last is my favorite of the Altman movies. Nashville's one that I'm almost pining to do. I mean, we did an episode on Nashville. I think that's the only time to date before today that we've engaged with the cinema of Robert Altman on the Michael and Us podcast. I think we did an episode uh, back in like the beginning of 2020. I think it was like a few days before the Iowa caucuses and we were trying to distract ourselves. But I remember watching that movie. I think that was still in the era where we had rather tinny audio on the show. So perhaps we can use that as a pretext to uh, do another episode on it and just uh, get to watch the movie again. But yeah, Altman is incredible. I think, uh, you know, those two films, uh, The Long Goodbye is great. I mean, I think my other favorite Altman film, though, is uh, Three Women. Do you have much of a relationship with that one? I mean, it's wonderful. I've only seen it once, but it's wonderful. Oh, I should, yeah. You should see it again. 
Uh, you haven't seen Popeye, have you? No, Will is always trying to sell me on Popeye. I haven't seen Popeye and I haven't seen MASH either, which is another important uh, You know, film. I don't love MASH, yeah. um, but um, I think you'd love Popeye, honestly. It's like, imagine the director of McCabe and Mrs. Miller made a movie about Popeye. I mean, that's, I can't. That's my pitch. Well, <laughs> that's my pitch. Like, you've never seen anything like it. It's an incredible film. It's kind of an amazing career he has because, yeah, there are like, you know, 10 masterpieces there and probably 10 movies that really don't work at all and then kind of 10 movies in the middle but they're all kind of united by a similar spirit they often have so much room for error in them you know he he puts them in the oven and kind of hopes they turn out and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't they have this diffuse quality yeah they're often sort of narratively a bit fragmented and they feature lots and lots of secondary characters there's a lot that goes unresolved there's a lot of kind of blank space and sometimes they come into focus and sometimes they don't. But even the ones that don't, I typically have respect for. I mean, McCabe and Mrs. Miller would certainly be an instance of Altman's method coming into focus. I mean, boy, is it ever. I guess I could just sit here all day just repeating that I liked it. Very few movies with such a kind of bone deep understanding of America. That sounds like a platitude, but it's true. Yeah, I mean, I I was going to say something similar. I mean, I think just as some background on uh, kind of what this movie's doing before we get into the plot, just a few things that I think you need to know if you haven't seen it. Uh, As I said, it employs a kind of fragmentary method of storytelling, or I think alternatively, and perhaps more generously, an immersive one. This is a film where, you know, you spend the first third of it just sort of existing in this town of Presbyterian Church. That's the name of the town where uh, the Warren Beatty character, uh, McCabe, uh, shows up at the beginning of the movie. The movie opens with this montage of Beatty in this kind of caravan going through the mountains. It's supposed to be Washington State. Of course, it's really uh, West Vancouver. It's British Columbia. We spend a lot of time uh, just sort of existing in this town. We watch McCabe interact with the sort of lethargic uh, villagers in this kind of frontier town that's under construction. We don't get to meet the other star of the movie, uh, Julie Christie's Mrs. Miller, until about 30 or 40 minutes in. The most important kind of plot turning event doesn't happen for another hour. But, you know, for the first uh, 70, 80 minutes or so, or 90 minutes even, uh, we're just kind of introduced to the inhabitants of this town that's kind of under construction, a sort of unfinished town. There are plenty of scenes where neither McCabe nor Mrs. Miller even appears, where we just see characters interacting details about them are kind of gradually revealed or at least uh, suggested rather than told. Pauline Kael uh, was a was a fan of this movie and uh, her review uh, is quite eloquent about it in many places. She says, uh, the picture seems to move in its own quiet time and the faded beauty of the imagery works a spell. Lives are picked up and let go and the sense of how little we know about them becomes part of the texture. I think that's very well put. Uh, A few other points on the texture of this film. She's talking about the narrative texture there, but I mean, aesthetically, this film has an interesting texture as well. The cinematography was by Vilmos Zygmunt, who, along with Laszlo Kovacs, was one of the cinematographers who sort of set the visual mood for the 1970s new Hollywood. Before this, he had largely made exploitation films, actually, like The Incredibly Strange Creatures Who Stopped Living and Became (laughs) Mixed Up Zombies was shot uh, by Zygmunt and others. This was one of his first major above-ground gigs. He went on to shoot Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Scarecrow, Heaven's Gate, many other notable films. Kevin Smith's Jersey Girl. 
<laughs> that was all your favorites. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. And he ended his career doing the Mindy Project. So uh, in Patrick McGilligan's biography of Robert Altman, Falling Off a Cliff, he wrote, Already Zygmunt had a reputation for being fast and battling the elements for the innovative use of filters and lab processes, for being a master at evoking the intended visual mood and ambiance of a given project. One thing everyone who has seen McCabe remembers is the evocative tint of the photography. That was Altman's idea, an effect obtained by flashing and fogging the film stock. According to Tommy Thompson, I'm not sure who that is, sorry, Altman had a yellow velour sweater and an inexpensive Polaroid camera. By clicking the shutter twice without advancing the film, you could double expose the roll. At one point during pre-production, Altman stuck his stomach out and took a Polaroid of the yellow velour. Then he turned and took another Polaroid of one of the actors on the set. What he was doing, in practice, was flashing the film. Thompson picks up the story, quote, Then he went to Vilmos and said, That's the look I want. I want that color. Vilmos said, How do you get that color? You're flashing the film. That's too dangerous. You can't do that. If you're shooting all day with flash film and you're overexposed or overflashed, you will have lost the day's work. Bob said, I don't care about that. That's my responsibility. There was quite an argument until Bob finally won. By the way, uh, about 10 years ago, I actually saw McCabe and Mrs. Miller with Vilmo Sigmund in attendance at the TIFF light box. I don't really have a story from that. I just really wanted bragging rights. It was a beautiful night. There's also, of course, the innovative overlapping sound technique, which Altman first used to great acclaim in M.A.S.H., and this is certainly one of his most ambitious experiments. There are a lot of people who struggle with McCabe and Mrs. Miller, and the sound is the thing that they struggle with. You have to kind of get in the headspace of, you know, you might hear about 50% of what is spoken, and that's okay. Yeah, and importantly, you know, we're not really talking about the sort of the, the main, uh, you know, narrative driving conversation here. We're talking about, you know, the many scenes in this movie that play out in the pub or in one of the pubs in Presbyterian Church, you know, the, the kind of principal one is the one owned by, I'm forgetting the character's name, but the one played by the late, great uh, René Aubergenois, who people will recognize as Odo from Star Trek Deep Space Nine before he was known for that role. But yeah, you know, two characters, perhaps McCabe and Mrs. Miller themselves will be having a conversation and then you'll hear all of these kind of things happening off camera or perhaps just in the setup to a scene you'll hear various groups of people having conversations all recorded on kind of personal microphones that each actor had and creating, a, as one writer put it, a cacophony out of which stray phrases surface like soda bubbles. As in Nashville and MASH, uh, and Popeye for that matter, and a number of other early Altman films, you see the characters just emerge into focus very slowly. You see these masses of people and then eventually the important ones. They, well, they reveal themselves. Right. And in these early scenes, I mean, this is a a bit of a hick pioneer town. <laughs> this is a, a D-list town in the American West, and McCabe is this mysterious alleged gunfighter and gambler who rolls in, and by virtue of being 20% more competent and assured <laughs> and, and handsome yeah, than everyone yeah. else around him, sort of becomes the de facto leader of the town. I mean, it's it's incredible, and we, we never learn the kind of uh, provenance of McCabe's backstory. René Aubergenois's character kind of early in the movie begins to speculate oh that's that's John McCabe he's the one that shot Bill Roundtree I don't think we ever 
never learn who Bill Roundtree was. There's just this kind of ambient myth attached to John McCabe, which suggests that he's some kind of famous gunfighter. And if anything, you know, McCabe's somewhat bumbling demeanor suggests that he's probably not that guy. Or if he did shoot whoever this Bill Roundtree was, he only won the duel by mistake. This is Warren Beatty's best performance, by the way. Oh, it's incredible. He's amazing. And I think this is the movie that really harnesses the Chevy Chasey inside of his persona. (laughs) That kind of wide-eyed bumbling quality. I like the way that he conveys somebody who is, yeah, just enough better than the rest of the town to come across as a fast talker and a smooth talker in that context, but who immediately crumbles the second anyone a fraction smarter than him comes. Yeah, I mean, this odd and kind of contradictory mixture between self-confidence and and kind of ego on the one hand and just being this kind of doddering, slightly insecure guy who's just kind of stumbled his way into everything he has in life. I mean, I think it takes great skill to pull off a character like that, and Beatty does it absolutely masterfully in this film. Julie Christie is uh, brilliant as well, I think, as as important to this film's success as Beatty. Both of them, I believe, also worked on the script as well and kind of reworked parts of it, including some of the dialogue for the secondary characters. Altman, very notoriously, was not a stickler for the script. The thing everyone always said about him was that he was like an actor's best friend and a screenwriter's worst enemy. <laughs> Although he did not get along with Beatty. Uh, interestingly, they had very opposite working methods. Beatty liked to do, you know, 30 takes. He's only getting warmed up at the 15th take, whereas Altman was very much the opposite. Well, I don't know if it's apocryphal, but I have heard a story about this movie where Beatty, uh, you know, kept insisting on doing all of these takes for, you know, some scene that Altman thought we had it by the third take or something. And then Altman uh, punished him, I guess, at a later scene, just insisting he do like 40 takes, even though they had it by the third one. <laughs> But so we, we will stop talking about the sort of ambient qualities of this film in a bit and, uh, and say something about the plot. But there are a few other things that merit mentioning. If there's a strange and special authenticity to this film... It comes, I think, in part from uh, Altman's somewhat unorthodox method in making it, but also just from the kind of circumstances around its creation, the immediate circumstances. So the film is certainly partaking in certain myths about, you know, the Old West. But since it understands them to be myths, that works as a strength and not against it. Perhaps we can get into that some more in a little bit. The filming actually began in the fictional town of Presbyterian Church before the sets had been finished. So they were still building the sets as the movie was being filmed. Which is fine. Well, and it, it it's more than fine. I mean, it, it drives along the narrative because it has the effect of, you know, the town of Presbyterian Church, which is basically a sort of hole in the ground with some tents and a pub and, you know, a church. When the movie begins, the town grows throughout the movie, and that's something that actually happened. The crew and uh, some of the actors, I'm not sure about Beatty and Christie, perhaps them as well, slept in the unfinished buildings. The shoot quickly fell behind schedule, uh, in part because there was such a dedication to kind of historical uh, authenticity that the workers who were involved in the construction of the town uh, actually traded their power tools for uh, hammers and screwdrivers to be, you know, in period. It is worth lingering so long on the texture of the movie because I can think of very few movies that accomplish exactly what this one does atmospherically. It's an extraordinarily beautiful movie that has not a single photogenic location. It's a movie caked in filthy rainwater and mud and sweat and blood. 
It's a movie about the sheer hardness of life in the American West in the 19th century. And we should note here that the the visual effect of the movie, which, yeah, it looks, the whole movie looks like a sort of filmed old photograph, to put it kind of crudely. And that's because, you know, in MASH, Altman had put fog filters over the cameras to create a kind of smudged look. And in this film, he actually exposed the film negatives to deliberately make the picture less clear. And he told, uh, he told an interview later, I wanted it to have that antique historical look. I really set out to make it look like those old photographs do. It really does look like that. The film has this kind of dank, cavernous quality, even when you're outside, which I think is just incredible. I saw another quote where he said he wanted to make a Western without any dust. You know, this is a muddy Western. We should also briefly mention the music of Leonard Cohen. Oh, uh, this is, beautiful. you know, mostly songs that come from the songs of Leonard I think, Cohen. I think all, all three of them do. Yeah, it's it's uh, the Stranger Song, Sisters of Mercy, and uh, and Winter Lady. Much like Sofia Coppola's later use of American popular music and Marie Antoinette, there's a kind of tension between, you know, the anachronism of the music and the time period, but then also like a, a deep kinship between the two tones. Uh, I do think there's something about that music music that makes the period setting come alive, makes the emotions of the period setting feel very contemporary. Yeah, and it is very difficult to imagine this film uh, without these three Leonard Cohen songs in it, which appear throughout and are used in interesting ways. I think in, in some cases, there's a kind of sardonic juxtaposition that happens where when uh, Sisters of Mercy is used, which of course is a very tender song, the images you're seeing on screen are actually kind of violent and upsetting. And which was the song that plays when McCabe is about to sleep with Mrs. Miller? And, and, and she interrupts him briefly and says, oh, by the way, put the, put the money in the, right, in the right, jar. Right, exactly. So this is why the Leonard Cohen songs are such an important part of the texture of this film. And Altman uses them in, in very different ways, despite the songs themselves all being from the same album. Because, of course, the refrain in Winter Lady is, you know, traveling ladies, stay a while until the night is over. I'm just a station on your way. I know I'm not your lover. And it, I mean, it just so wonderfully captures the dynamic between McCabe and Mrs. Miller, who do have some kind of genuine affection for one another. They have a real intimacy, but it's also kind of complicated by other things and mediated by other things, including the fact that they are also business partners and that both of them are only in this frontier town because in, in their own different ways, they're both hustlers. Traveling lady, stay a while until the night is over. I'm just a station on your way I know I'm not your lover well, we already established the character of McCabe, who comes into town as this sort of mysterious gunfighter and gambler. He establishes a sort of rudimentary brothel. It's not even a house of ill repute. It's uh, uh, several tenths of ill repute. He's not managing it particularly well. I mean, I, I said that this is a movie of mud and blood, and there's an early, uh, really hair-raising encounter where we see one of the women fleeing one of the tents after being attacked by a John and stabbing him to death, basically. This is the sort of chaos that's happening under McCabe's watch. Yeah, and I mean, this points to one of the many ways in which the film just has this diaphanous and ambiguous quality. In the same way that Nashville, Altman's successor to McCabe and Mrs. Miller, shows you a great deal, but doesn't really ever quite tell you what to think about it. McCabe and Mrs. Miller somehow manages to make kind of a tenderness and romance and heroism coexist quite naturally with ugliness and racism and misogyny. And I think one of the things it does very well is it shows them all 
all kind of coexisting. It shows them all as part of the same kind of terrain. That probably won't make any sense if you haven't seen the movie. But if you have seen the movie, you'll probably know what I mean. I mean, like Nashville, this is a film that in kind of the broadest sense, you might say, is about America. But so of the kind of uh, various ugly things we see in the in this movie, I mean, the fact that one of the central pillars of this town that you know, McCabe gets going and then Mrs. Miller helps uh, professionalize is this brothel. And the depiction of, uh, you know, the women who work at the brothel, who are, of course, basically, I mean, they're, they're essentially victims of sex trafficking. The way the film depicts them is quite extraordinary as well, because even though, you know, it shows their plight as a very bleak one, there are also lots of scenes of tenderness and private joy and friendship as well. And somehow the film makes it all work and is able to show all of these things coexisting. Well, Mrs. Miller comes into town, sees the business that McCabe is running, makes the case to him why he needs a madam class girls and clean linen and proper hygiene, etc., etc. Within seemingly weeks, the new brothel is the social hub of the town. I like that, by the way, about the movie, that the brothel does basically seem to be the only relief in this town. You've got a church, and you've got a brothel, and there's various places where people work. And that's basically... And drink. <laughs> yeah, and that's basically all there is in this town. And everybody understands it. And the brothel isn't stigmatized, per se, because it's the only relief for the wretched life that you have in this miserable it's all, it's little town. It's also just the nicest like building in town yeah. and the best maintained. No one seems that interested in the church. The town is called Presbyterian Church, but the church doesn't really ever see... We don't, I don't think we see a single service actually happen in the church. And as is the case when any entrepreneur gets a little too successful, the big boys begin to notice. Representatives from the Harrison Shaughnessy Mining Company arrive in town. They're very interested in the local zinc reserves, as well as all of the surrounding businesses. At this point, McCabe, flush and arrogant with success, brushes off their proposals. They're offering him something in the area of $5,000 for his brothel. But having been a big fish in a small pond for a little while, McCabe believes his own reputation as being uh, the, the sharpest tool in town. When he thinks he's going to hustle them, he thinks he's going to say, no, I'm not going to take your $5,500. And, you know, they're going to come back the next morning and say, okay, well, we'll make it 15000 But of course, as McCabe quickly learns... The Harris and Shaughnessy Mining Company uh, is only negotiating with him as a courtesy, and they don't actually have to negotiate with him at all because he's literally nobody. Mrs. Miller knows who they are, by the way. She says words to the effect of, well, you better hope they come back because if they don't, they're going to come back even later and put a bullet in you. Constance Miller is, I think, much more of a realist than John McCabe. She's somebody who I think is more disillusioned with the world than he is. Some part of him, despite his kind of bumbling character and his various insecurities, some part of him really believes in kind of the frontier myth. And even if he knows that, you know, the backstory people have assigned to him, oh, the man who shot Bill Roundtree, big deal, even though he knows that that's bullshit in some way, he still buys into the myth in some fashion. So we're jumping ahead a bit, but there's a really funny scene, uh, probably the funniest scene in the movie, where he goes to town, you know, whatever the kind of closest actual settlement is, because Presbyterian Church is like barely a town. And he talks to this lawyer, this gushing and effervescing about the law and also about his, uh, you know, his his future Senate campaign. When a man goes into the wilderness and with his bare hands gives birth to a small enterprise, nourishes it, and tends it while it grows, well, I'm here to tell you that no dirty sons of bitches are going to take it away from him. Now, ain't that right? Well, I... I You're I, damn right it's right. <laughs> now, you take that there company, Harrison and Shaughnessy. They are stockholders. Do you think they want their uh, stockholders and the public thinking that their management isn't imbued with all the principles of fair play and justice. 
The very values that make this country what it is today. Uh-huh. Busting up these trusts and monopolies is at the very root of the problem of creating a just society. Damn it, McCabe, I'm here to tell you that this free enterprise system of ours works. And working within it, we can protect the small businessmen and the big businessmen. Yeah, played by William Devane, going on about how entrepreneurs like him are the lifeblood of communities like this. And we need, to, we need to get to the press. We need to get your face out there. You need to become a symbol of breaking up the trusts and the monopolies. Yeah, so this, this guy from, you know, smiling from behind his mutton chops says to him, damn it, McCabe, I'm here to tell you that this free enterprise system of ours works. And working within it, we can protect the small businessmen and the big businessmen. And then, you know, I like McCabe's reply where he's like, I just don't want to get killed. But this conversation sort of reinfuses John McCabe with oh, some man. sense that I was, he's, I was <laughs> laughing in the next scene where it cuts to him with Miller and he's spouting all this as if he thought of it like I, I, t- I tell you Constance you know sometimes a man's gotta put his hand in the fire and, a, and a stand up to the monopolist <laughs> Yeah, and she's just, she's basically just like, they're going to kill you. <laughs> now, there are a lot of secondary characters in this movie. We'll get back to the third act in a moment, but there is a wonderful scene a little earlier where a cowboy, a mysterious cowboy, comes over the horizon and everyone in the bar kind of hushes up because you know they just see the silhouette and they think, oh, McCabe, there's another dangerous gunfighter who's come to town. You must protect us. So McCabe goes out to meet him, you know, hand on holster, only to find that it's not a dangerous cowboy at all. It's a smiling happy cowboy played by Keith Carradine, who has just heard about the brothel and, you know, wants to check it out. I think this scene is interesting uh, for a number of reasons. And I think it's meant to kind of rhyme with, you know, the scene at the beginning of the movie when McCabe first arrives, because it underscores the power of myth. The perceptions of the people in town can be shaped by very superficial things uh, that are completely abstracted from any kind of experience actually meeting these people. Another character who I think is very important is the one played by Shelley Duvall. She comes in on the same train as Mrs. Miller with her husband. And around two thirds of the way in, her husband dies and we see the funeral. You know, half the town has come out and she's standing by the coffin as it's being lowered and Altman cuts to Julie Christie's face, just kind of looking at her with a look that conveys, well, you have one option. You know, there's only one thing for you to do, which is quite chilling. And then later there's a scene of the Shelley Duvall character at the brothel at her first night, basically being made up by Mrs. Miller. And you get a sense of how good Mrs. Miller is at her job, comforting her, saying, well, you know, uh, when you think about it, all sex is transactional. You know, you you did this with your husband, right? Shelley Duvall says, well, yeah, but it was my duty then. And she says, well, hey, you know, it's it's your duty now. You're just doing it for room and board, just like you did. And, And a little bit more money, too. In fact, you're getting a better deal than you did with your husband. Husband. Who, who she hated. It's important. I mean, that's the yes. other thing is at the funeral, looking at Shelley Duvall's face, there's also a barely concealed sense of relief as well, because her husband was was an asshole. Now, there's a third instance of a mysterious stranger showing up in town. This is a character known uh, only as Butler, uh, played by a guy called uh, Hugh Millais, who I think collaborated elsewhere uh, with Robert Altman. I don't know much about him, but he's absolutely brilliant as Butler in this movie. The way he effortlessly conveys a sense of menace, this guy who comes in and people see him from the window and say, oh, he's about seven feet tall, guy wearing this huge fur coat effortlessly swats down McCabe's attempts to kind of uh, negotiate with him. Well, let's just make that an even 6,500 and you got yourself a deal. I don't make deals. Uh, well, what you doing up here if you don't make deals? I came up here to hunt bear. Now, he's very good around. Oh, get off. The bear. 
McCabe sort of uh, assumes that he's there on on behalf of uh, the Shaughnessy Company, which of course is half true. But McCabe wrongly thinks that he can reason with this guy. You know, he can he can kind of uh, sweet talk Butler. Now Butler comes with two henchmen uh, as well. And there's a while where they're just kind of this uh, this menacing presence in the town. You know, officially the story is that butlers come to hunt big game, black bears or grizzly bears or something. But clearly these are hired guns who are, who are here to take out John McCabe. And one of the most painful scenes in the movie comes when the happy cowboy, uh, played by Keith Carradine, comes to a local shop uh, to get some replacement socks because he's leaving town. We see him actually leaving the brothel and you know he's made many friends there. You know Everyone's saying goodbye to him. And he tries to cross a little bridge in town uh, where Butler and his henchmen, or one of the henchmen, uh, is doing target practice with a, a bottle on the frozen lake below the bridge and is, pretty, is a pretty bad shot. And there's a really uh, upsetting little scene where this henchman is kind of negging the Keith Carradine uh, character and sort of intermittently acting friendly and hostile before sort of contriving a premise for him to take his gun out of his holster by saying, oh, you're, you're a bad shot. There's probably something wrong with your gun. Let me fix it for you. And then there's this absolutely chilling shot because, of course, he shoots the cowboy. And then in slow motion, we just see Keith Carradine fall from the bridge and fall in the icy water, just stone cold dead as, you know, many members members of the town kind of look on just completely powerless to do anything. And it's a very powerful scene, even though neither of the stars of the movie are actually in the scene and it doesn't really service the larger plot in any significant way. I think it's very important nonetheless, principally because of the shots of the villagers looking on powerless to do anything. There is nothing I hate more than the idea that something should be excised if it doesn't advance the plot. So many of the greatest moments in movies are, are these little grace notes. Now, the finale of the movie comes in the form of uh, a pretty exciting showdown where McCabe faces off against the three hired guns who've come to kill him. He smartly goes to the local chapel so that he can go up to the top of the steeple and get a view on the whole town. But then when he descends the ladder, he finds the priest uh, has confiscated his shotgun and is pointing it at him and he's saying, you know, no weapons in my church. So McCabe has to flee the church and is left with only his pistol. We won't run through everything that happens, but McCabe is able to defeat the first two henchmen, not before they enter the church, kill the priest and start a fire. Everyone in the town goes to put out the fire. So there's this kind of, uh, you know, remarkable, uh, spontaneous collaboration between everyone in the town. You know, every part of the social order is out to stop the church, which none of them really seem to use, stop it from burning down. At this point, uh, McCabe retreats into a snowbank, only to be shot by Butler, but then is able to play dead and get him right in the dome uh, with a pistol he has concealed. After which, you know, the images of a wounded McCabe struggling through the snow are kind of juxtaposed with everyone in the town celebrating as uh, as they put out the fire. And then there's this kind of uh, mournful shot right at the end where Mrs. Miller has taken refuge in an opium den without direct knowledge of McCabe's fate, but clearly knowing uh, what's happened. And in the final shot of the movie, which is a simple one, but which I've always found very powerful, she's just kind of twirling around a piece of jewelry or something in her hand. And you can just see Constance Miller's reflection as the credits roll. It's a tragic ending, but uh, like everything else in this film, just improbably a sublimely beautiful one as well. 
And here I'll just quote again from uh, Pauline Kael, uh, the first line of her review, which I think sums things up beautifully is, McCabe and Mrs. Miller is a beautiful pipe dream of a movie, a fleeting, almost diaphanous vision of what frontier life might have been. A bit later, she continues, Altman builds a western town as one might build a castle in the air. The gaslight, the subdued, restful color, and Mrs. Miller's golden opium glow, Leonard Cohen's lovely, fragile, ambiguous songs, and the drifting snow all make the movie hazy and evanescent. Everything is in motion, and yet there is a stillness about the film, as if every element in it were conspiring to tell the same incredibly sad story that the characters are lost in their separate dreams. Now, I guess one might ask, uh, what is McCabe and Mrs. Miller, a film that is defined by kind of absence and ambiguity as much as anything else? You know, what is this film about? It's about don't become an entrepreneur because they'll just fucking crush you. (laughs) Well, I think, uh, you know, like Nashville and like other uh, Altman films, it's kind of ambiently about America. It's not really uh, editorially about anything exactly. I'm not really sure it has a thesis beyond perhaps the one that Will just offered us. But in saying uh, it's about America, I don't just mean that in a sort of hacky Time magazine sort of way. I do mean that uh, at least half seriously. I think if this film is about anything, it's about the way that people's relationships, even and sometimes especially their intimate ones, ones are inevitably mediated by commercial exchange. You know, that's true of uh, the relationship between John McCabe and Constance Miller, but it's also true of the relationships between all of the villagers in this town, mediated by commercial exchange and also through shared myth. Well, you know, when Mrs. Miller says to the Shelley Duvall character, you're just doing the duty you had to do with your husband and didn't want to do with him and getting a little extra money on top of it sounds like a pretty good deal, doesn't it? She's got a point. Well, just further on the subject of myth. I mean, I think this film is also about how the mythical, heroic, Promethean frontier man you know, whatever is written about him, whatever people believe about him, uh, he's in reality at the mercy of the same forces as all the rest of us. The myths surrounding John McCabe is enough for him to become a sort of de facto mayor of this town. But as soon as Monopoly Capital is interested uh, in the zinc deposits nearby, it turns out that that myth is just as fragile as anything else. I'm not quite sure where this fits in, but I love that the church is the only real building uh, in the town when McCabe first arrives. You know, the town is quite literally named after it, right? It's the town of Presbyterian Church. Uh, And it's also one of the two kind of major settings for the conclusion of the film. Although, again, we never really get to see it used. It's a symbolic presence in the town rather than an active or a living one. And I'm not really quite sure where this fits in or how to extrapolate a grand thesis from it. But I think it's quite significant that one of the final events of the movie is that everyone in the town, you know, every part of the social order of the town descends on the church in order to save it. I'm not quite sure where the church fits in, but it has this kind of powerful symbolic quality, even if it's just kind of a vessel. Is the symbolic quality the idea that we're all bound together by something other than commercial interest? That we have a shared foundation that's not quite so base? Because I'll just add that I I find it quite moving the way that they band together to save the church. Like at the end of this movie, full of so much grime and unpleasantness and exploitation, the fact that they all rather selflessly work together to save this perceived pillar of the community is very powerful. Well, I think if there is an optimistic or a kind of non-tragic interpretation of uh, the way this film concludes, that would be it. 
and I hadn't quite thought of it that way myself, but I think like so much else about McCabe and Mrs. Miller, the kind of spontaneous sense of community we see at, at the end of the film as they all rally to save the church and the kind of the shots of the community triumphant, everybody embracing as uh, the fire goes out, the juxtaposition of that with the fate of John McCabe. In some fundamental and important way, that juxtaposition is what this movie is all about. And even though I think it's a beauty that's very hard to articulate, I think it's the coexistence of these two qualities that make McCabe and Mrs. Miller such a uniquely beautiful film. Don't turn on the lights, you can read their address by the moon. Make me jealous if I hear that they sweeten your night. We weren't lovers like that, and besides, it would still be alright. We weren't lovers like that, and besides, it would still be alright. 